how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swenson. In this series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, and other creatives where we discuss the habits, routines, and methods of a creative life. This episode is brought to you by FreelancerClass.com. At FreelancerClass, you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money as a writer, marketer, graphic designer, virtual assistant, or an accountant online. Make a little extra money or place your income full-time at FreelancerClass.com. In this episode, author Neil Thompson describes his deep dive into journalism and discovery to want to tell longer stories. After a few published magazine articles, he then moved on to writing Americana books that involved astronauts, how Georgia Moonshine led to NASCAR, a winning football team after a hurricane, and the biography of Robert Ripley from Ripley's Believe It or Not. After the interview, make sure to check out neilthompson.com for more information and to order your own books from him. That's Neil Thompson, N-E-A-L-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys who I, I think it is a lucky thing that I just always knew I wanted to, to be a writer. Um, but it wasn't until college that I realized that I needed to find a way to make a living as a writer. And the uh, best way to do that would be to, to write for, um, for newspapers. So I studied um, journalism in college. I um, did internships and, and wrote for um, some newspapers in college. And then my first job right out of college was a newspaper. And I did that for about, about 12, 13 years um, and, and loved it. You know, I lived in different cities, up and down the East Coast. Um, my first job was in Roanoke, Virginia. Actually, it was my second job. But anyway, um, and uh, and I think over time, I decided I wanted to tell longer stories and dig deeper and do more research. And that led me to starting to write some magazine stories and then eventually to, um, to wanting to, to uh, work on a book. Um, anyway, I'll stop there and let you keep going. Okay. Um, were you a columnist? Like, what kind of articles were you first writing in, in papers and whatnot? Um, it was kind of all over the map. Um, you know, I've had pretty much every beat, newspaper beat that you could have. I've covered cops and courts and, and education and, um, uh, you know, lifestyle stuff. I've, uh, uh, I covered the U.S. Naval Academy for a while, which is really fun. So I've covered some military stuff. Um, so it was always a just a, a news reporter with different beats. Um, done some investigative reporting, some feature writing. So how do you pick your topics if you want to kind of go from the first one forward? Yeah. Um, I guess I'm always looking for a, a few things with each book. I'm trying to find a story that hasn't really fully been told yet, 
or or at least not in in, uh, in the the way I set out to do it. Um, so kind of overlooked stories. Most of my stories have just ended up being a, a little bit of um, had a little bit of history to them, a little bit of Americana. Um, and also they've ended up being a lot of sort of guy stories, men who want to live big lives. Um, and so the first, the first book was a biography of Alan Shepard, the, uh, the astronaut, first American in space. Um, and he was an example of someone who had not been written about before or not extensively. He was part of the Mercury seven program. And so the first seven astronauts were called the Mercury seven astronauts. And each of them had written, either their own book or had a book written about them except for Alan Shepard. So I thought there's got to be a great story there. And just, I just got lost in the research and all of my books were heavily research based. And I really enjoy that part of the process, um, you know, digging for material, conducting interviews with people and, and, and really immersing myself in the, in the material. Um, the uh, the second book after um, the Alan Shepard book, which is called Light This Candle, uh, the next one was uh, this deep exploration into the, the the roots of NASCAR. I wanted to know kind of where where it all began and how, and ended up focusing on on these you know Georgia moonshiners who um, are are credited with being um, some of the first and best racers, the first team, the first mechanic, the first uh, car sponsors, like all, all these things that you, um, that we know about with NASCAR today um, started with this core group in Atlanta in the 1930s and 40s um, who are kind of considered the, the sort of grandfather and, and, and first team and first mechanic of the sport. Um, and that, that was just really fun digging into how I guess I, I wanted to explore the connections between um, moonshining, moonshine running, and and uh, stock car racing. It's a it's a it's it's something I had always heard about with NASCAR that the first races with moonshiners, but I never really knew what that meant um, and how they were truly connected to each other. Um, there have been a lot of stories and even some books written about a racer named Junior Johnson from North Carolina um, as, as sort of the example of a moonshine runner who became an NASCAR racer, but he, he didn't come along until the 1950s really mm-hmm. um, and raced on into the sixties. And he was a phenomenal racer and he's got a great story, but I thought, well, if NASCAR came from bootlegging, um, who were the original bootleggers? And that's right. how I ended up uh, finding Raymond Parks and, uh, Red Byron, Lloyd C., and Roy Hall, and and the guys who are in my book. Um, but where did like how did you collect all this information? I mean, where did, who did you interview? What kind of time frame went into this book? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, and and it's it's I guess a a piece of the backstory that I'm I'm kind of uh, I don't know uh, proud of, but also it was just fun. Um, uh, because I think I early on in the research kept running into the same problems. Like they're, they're just, you know, it's not like writing about an astronaut where you've got NASA archives to dig into. They, they just right. weren't, you know, NASCAR, early NASCAR archives to, to, you know, and there wasn't paperwork or stuff that they, that anyone saved. So I think the, there was, there was one breakthrough and it, it's really what made the book and, and I'll always be grateful to him, but um, Raymond Parks, um, 
uh, agreed to meet with me. And early on in the process, people kept saying, if you get Raymond to talk, you, you, you'll get a good story. Um, and he was getting pretty old at, at the time that I started, um, which was probably oh, like 2002 or something. Um, so I, I'm not sure how old he would have been at that time, but uh, definitely into his 80s. Um, and uh, I, I uh, lived in Asheville, North Carolina at the time and would drive over to Atlanta. And Raymond still went to work pretty much every day at the liquor store that he owned, one of numerous uh, liquor stores that he's owned over the years. Um, and he would he would <laughs> put on his suit and tie and, and go to work and kind of just dither around. He, he wasn't really deeply involved in the running of the day-to-day business, but he just, you know, he was – he was a responsible guy, and he liked to show up and sort of put in his time. And um, he was just a true, like, southern gentleman. Um, and uh, and so I would just show up uh, now and then and, and sit in his office and talk to him. And any time I tried to ask him a little bit um, more deeply about the moonshine running, he would he would back off and say, no, I'm not going to talk about that. Right. Now. right. And I would just, I'd say, thank you, sir. You know, maybe next time we can talk a little bit about it. And he would always let me come back and just, I just kept showing up and little by little he started opening up to me. And then once he opened up, that opened up all these other doors because I could tell some of the other old timers and his family members and uh, uh, even NASCAR folks that Raymond told me this and, you know, I'd like to get your version of the story. So that, that made a huge difference. Um, And it also, his cooperation and his information then led me to other sources. Um, And so I was able to find court records um, based on, uh, you know, some of the incidents that that Raymond talked about, Um, you know, in the book, I I describe in detail the story of uh, his, his, one of his racers, Lloyd C getting shot and killed by his, uh, his own cousin, and I found the the court documents that that described in detail that court case and and testimony and police information, and it was just it was just kind of a thrilling moment to to, to reach up onto this top shelf in the courthouse in Dawsonville, Georgia, and and find the document that I've been looking for that kind of told me that whole story and some of the background of Boise's life and his and his racing life. Um, what are some of your, like your your favorite parts of the book? And tell us a little bit about the cover and how you how you chose that image or that image was chosen. Yeah, um, some of the favorite parts, I guess. Um, you know, it was fun to recreate some of the the race scenes. Um, and uh, you know, there, there aren't too many because there's only so much you can sort of write about in a in a, in a race unless something happens. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the ones that I thought was um, pretty intense to write about um, was this uh, uh, race. I'm not sh- I'm not entirely sure where it happened. It might have been Columbus, Georgia, um, but it was the tail end of a race that uh, Red Byron was winning. And um, and uh, I describe in the book how you know he had been wounded in World War II and he had to wear this leg brace and it was sort of they created a device so he could operate the clutch pedal based, you know, using, using this, this leg brace. And anyway, um, so he, it, it was tricky for him to, to, to drive and change gears, but he ended up figuring it out and was clearly very good at it. But in this one race, he had a, I think it was a blowout and his car veered off the track. And, you know, you can see from some of the old photos of early races, there wasn't a whole lot of 
protection between the, the cars and the and the uh, and the fans, and uh, Red Byron plowed into um, the spectators and ended up killing a five-year-old boy. Oh. Um, and it just sort of devastated him. He was he was a wreck after that for a long period of time. And um, uh, and then a little bit later in the book, I describe how um, uh, the final race of the following season, which I, for, I forget if it was the '48 or uh, season or maybe '49, one of the first seasons of, of NASCAR, um, the final race of the season was on that same track. Where Red Byron had, uh, you know, accidentally killed the little boy, and this time he he wins the race and becomes NASCAR's champion that year. Um, wow. So there were just some amazing stories to to revisit, um, and uh, and I think because Red Byron was the you know the the, the NASCAR champ the first two official years um, of its existence, um, and is kind of an overlooked. Um, figure in the early days of the sport. I, I think that's one reason he ended up on the cover. And I just love that shot because it shows him, um, you know, smoking a cigarette, leaning against his car. You know, the <clears throat> the car has Red Vote's name on it, his, uh, his mechanic. Um, and uh, I don't know, it just kind of represents the what things looked like back then and who these guys were. You know, they weren't, they weren't celebrities. They weren't, uh, um, you know, entertainers like like uh, we sometimes think of NASCAR racers now. They were just guys who you know put on their overalls and got behind the wheel and raced the butts off. I may come back to some more of the book. Um, tell me about your third and fourth book. I know you just had one come out recently as well. Yeah, so the the third one um, was slightly different from the others. Um, it was more contemporary rather than like historical. It was the story of a uh, high school football team uh, at a small school outside New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, um, and and the story of that school after the hurricane coming back together and the sort of the whole school community rallying around the football team. They'd always been a pretty impressive football team and had won championships at their level many times, but they really got uh damaged the school got damaged and the and the players got dispersed during the hurricane so they all sort of came back and rallied around the team and then they go on and win the state championship that year um so that one was called hurricane season um and then the, the next book after that was a biography of uh robert ripley the guy who created ripley's believe it or not um so it was this, the backstory of where that uh that whole concept of believe it or not came from and um I guess similar to the first two books, it was a, an attempt to kind of look back at um, the overlooked story of where this um, this idea <clears throat> came from. You know, we know the Believe It or Not museums, or you know, if you're as old as me, you might have seen the cartoons and, and books growing up. And uh, I wanted to explore the life of the guy who created it all, and he had never really been written about before, um, and uh, just turned out to be it is a, a fascinating story of this guy who started out as a newspaper cartoonist and essayist and and then started traveling the world and then started drawing cartoons about the weird things he saw when he was traveling the world. Um, and then those cartoons became more and more popular. And then he got into radio and film and uh, writing books, best-selling books and um, became a, um, you know, really successful 
and and wealthy uh, sort of newspaper radio entertainer, like a, a media mogul during his day, um, and uh, and then died young and is mostly forgotten as a person, even though the, the believe it or not brand lived on well beyond him. So that one was called the Curious Man. Still doing okay, you know. We had uh, I participated in a. A PBS documentary about Ripley's life a little over a year ago, so that came out and gave the book some momentum. And um, yeah, is there anything you're working on now? Um, I'm trying to write a book about my kids and their obsession with skateboarding. Okay, very cool. Um, I'm not sure where that's going yet. How did you um, kind of end up in Asheville? Are, are you still teaching as well? No, I, I actually currently work at uh, Amazon um, okay. in Seattle um, and been there for coming up on almost five years now. Um, Asheville, my wife and I moved there. Um, we had been in Baltimore, um, and it was sort of after 9-11. Um, I had started my first book. I really liked working for and by myself, and, and it sort of after 9-11, my wife and I started thinking, well, what do we what do we want to do? Like, where do we really want to end up? We just sort of went through this rethinking phase. And uh, my wife's parents lived outside of Asheville in Hendersonville. Um, and I was starting to think about this this book about the moonshining origins of NASCAR. And we decided to just, just go for it and move to Asheville and start over. And even though we didn't have jobs at the time and um, yeah, so we just we just packed up and left. Um, ended up living there for six years. Loved it. Still have some great friends down there. Um, did some teaching at the uh, at the UNC campus there. Um, but then we moved to Seattle in 2008. Been here ever since. Let's see. What are some of your writing rituals when it's just you, like in the room? Do you have anything that has to be a certain way? Do you write in the morning? What's your routine like? You write every day. Yeah, I, when I'm in a routine, I, I definitely try and write every day, and I think it's important to do that. Um, you know, just to keep pushing the idea forward, even if it's just getting a couple lines down. I, I feel like I've accomplished something, um, uh, and I've I've always d- done that with my writing. Is just try and um, you know, it's not it's not a new idea, but just but just get my butt in the chair, and and, right. and sometimes I'll have a great day, and something will come out, and I'll, and it'll be you know a couple thousand words. Uh, other days it'll just be shuffling some sentences around, and maybe I end up with a hundred words. But um, usually, usually if I just force myself to sit and and uh, and hopefully not get distracted. I mean, it's getting harder and harder to avoid the distractions of the email and the internet and everything else. Um, and, and that's part of my routine too, I think is, is doing what I can to avoid distractions and, you know, find a quiet place or wear headphones if I'm working in a coffee shop and uh, avoid email and just, just focus on the work for a set period of time. Um, and when, when I'm, when I'm in a good groove, I'm working every day for a certain like, set period of time you know i like working early uh, there have been times i've worked from like you know 6 a.m to 9 to, to 9 or 10 a.m just sort of straight through and and um that seemed to work best for me now that i've got a full-time job it's a little harder i, I need to carve out just hour-long chunks here and there but um but but the same sort of ritual applies which is um you know every day just get your butt in the chair for as long as you can. 
I like to listen to music too when I write. Um, different things get me in different moods. If I feel stuck, sometimes uh, uh, some loud music can snap me out of it, and uh, um, and so can so can a little bourbon in the afternoon if I'm feeling really <laughs> stuck and I just need to like relax and. Um, clear my head and 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 get a few more words down in the afternoon, or 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 muscle through a tricky little section. Um, I gotta say, I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, Two Fingers of of Bullet or um, or Woodford Reserve. Okay. Um, is there anything you wish you had known about writing, like before you started your first book, or any any advice you'd like to pass on to other writers? Huh. Um, you know, I think there. Are few things I've learned either myself or from other writers over the years. And, and, and one of them I thought about just recently more and more, cause I'm trying to write my own stuff is like to not, to not be too afraid of, 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 uh, just getting the words down, not be afraid of failing, not be, um, afraid that you're not worthy of it. If you know what I mean? Like so, sometimes you just gotta tell your story Get it down on, 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 you know, paper or you know, uh, whatever you're writing with, and um, and and then take it from there because you know you're always going to be able to rewrite stuff later. So um, it doesn't have to be perfect. Is is I guess one thing. You know, just just getting your story down in in its imperfect form um, is is sometimes just a, a, the best goal. And then and then later you can figure out how to move things around and. <clears throat> um, cut, add, edit, whatever needs to happen. But um, just getting the words down is is sometimes the most important thing, and just sort of getting out of your way too, um, and not and not being afraid to to just go for it. Okay, I just got one or two more for you. Um, so you said some of the reason you were attracted to these particular stories is that they haven't really been covered before. Um, in your opinion, what makes a good story? Huh. These are good questions. Um, I think what makes a good story to me is a character or a set of characters that you care about. You, you really want to know what's going to happen next to them, and you want to root for them. Mm-hmm. And I think they don't have to be perfect human beings. Mm-hmm. And in fact, sometimes it's more interesting if they're not, you know, if they're flawed characters and they sort of overcome hardships and overcome their own flaws and accomplish something. And I, and I think with the people that I've been interested in writing about, they're all flawed, sometimes deeply. Um, you know, Alan Shepard was, um, you know, uh, uh, an incredibly cocky um, uh, and competitive guy. He wasn't the most faithful husband. Um, he was a rule breaker and a little bit of a renegade. Um but all those things to me made me made him feel human and and not kind of a cookie cutter character, and then you end up hopefully rooting for him throughout the story, um, even with those flaws. Because I think if it's a if it's a well drawn character, either in fiction or nonfiction, people see themselves in those characters in certain ways. You know, you want to be able to relate to them, and if somebody's too perfect, you can't relate. You want to be able to see yourself in them, and then. You know, if they succeed, it means you can succeed, that kind of thing. Um, but I think, you know, for me, what 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 helps a great story is is a great plot, and it doesn't have to be a super complicated plot. But um, I think beautiful writing, in and of itself, 
um, isn't enough for me. It needs to be um, uh, there needs to be something at stake, you know, that that yeah. some somebody is going to, you know, win or lose whatever the, the stakes are. And that's what keeps the momentum going is you want to find out what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what keeps you turning the pages. If the good story has that kind of narrative tension. Okay. I guess I have one more for you. Um, what books do you gift the most often or what books do you go back to and read over and over again? Some of your influences. Um, as far as the second question, I, I've never been somebody who goes back and reads, and it's and it's something I've thought about a lot over the years because um, there are books I loved the first time. I'm almost afraid to go back and read them again. Uh-huh. Um, like there's there are a couple John Irving books that I or Haruki Murakami um, um, that I've read, and they were just so impactful and at a certain time in my life and. I'm almost worried to reread them and and have a different view of them. So I've just never been a re-reader. Um, I and and I also just don't I, um, I don't keep books around a lot. I just I, I I like the experience of 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 reading certain books, and there are very few that I keep long term. I guess. Um, so that's not a great answer to your question, but I, there's just not a whole lot that I go back to. Yeah. Um, and then as far as gifting, I think there are just a handful that um, – it depends on what – it changes over time. There's a wonderful book um, that I've given to people over the years called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Mm-hmm. came out three, four, five years ago. Years ago, I used to give, give people either uh, Kurt Vonnegut or Haruki Murakami books. How do you – how are you with um, editing and ending? Like when you finish this book, are you done with that story or do you still wish you could go back to it? That kind of thing. Are you, when you're done, are you completely done writing a piece? No, I I do a lot of editing. Um, I I do it while I'm writing. I do it after I feel like I'm at the end and I'll, I'll uh, go back to it um, multiple times until, you know, pretty much until my editor says you have to give it to me now and stop messing with it. Cause I always feel like a, a story can get improved. Um, and I'm a little, I'm a little too obsessed with like improving it um, up until the last possible minute. And, and I have gone, you know, I've read sort of skimmed through sections of my books after they've been published and really wished I could have fixed this thing here or that thing there or trimmed some of this out. Um, and I think um, I'm a big believer in writers working with an editor right? Um, during the process. I think it just makes a huge difference to have not just readers. Um, I mean, I think it's important to have readers and get input from other readers along the way. Um, but I think it's additionally very helpful to have um, an, an, an editor if you, you know, let if you were if you've sold your book and you're working with a publishing house, you know, to stay close to your editor during the writing process. Or if you haven't um, yet sold the book and you don't know where it's going to end up, to find an editor. You know, maybe pay somebody before um, you're done with the book to really get some some professional feedback on on how it's going. Because I think very few writers can can work in isolation in a in a bubble. I think I, I think getting um, uh, other opinions about where where your your story is headed is is crucial. 
that's, that's definitely the misconception I think that most people have with Rudder. You know, I, I appreciate your your interest in this. It's you know, it's always good for a, a writer whose book's been out for more than a few years to uh, to find other ways to talk to potential readers about it and to talk to folks like you about it. It's something I still care deeply about. I think it's a, just a fun story mm-hmm. um, and an important one. You know, sort of an important hit piece of history.